Hi there, this is Jonathan. Welcome back to the podcast. Grateful for your presence, grateful for your attention. We are in the middle of a discussion of a very challenging question, both for young and old in the faith Christians, and that is how can a good God let someone go to hell who's never heard the gospel before? Glenn Osborne is tackling this question with us as we consider the scriptures. Let's jump back into the episode, shall we? What about in Romans 2, though? Maybe this is a good time for it. When it says specifically in Romans 2 that that law of the heart has the ability to justify or condemn. So it seems as though the conscience could justify one before God whenever I read that scripture by itself. Um so follow my reasoning here. Okay. <laughs> if I am that person who is maybe in the Western Hemisphere and I live and die before the gospel ever came here, could my conscience justify me before God? Before Christ came, that, that was the way God is going to deal with it, before Christ came. But when Christ came, everything changed. He, Acts 17.30, he is now commanding the times of ignorance God once winked at. Right. He is now commanding all men everywhere it's all inclusive repent. so it it was the law of the conscience and and to those whom he gave a law he would hold them accountable to it but to those who didn't give a law it was the law of the conscience it was a by faith mm -hmm. it was a, a faithful thing before god but god's grace would be extended to those who based on the law of conscience would live now we just leave that up to god because god's god and that's why he said he's going to deal with it but when jesus christ came everything changed. He said he furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And therefore, we can't. We have to deal with the Son of God whenever he comes, uh, whenever he came and brought grace and truth and, and the knowledge and awareness of what it really took to be saved from our sins. Maybe I'm being legalistic about this, but I'm just going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the gnat in the soup, you know, <laughs> while I'm swallowing the camel here. But what about a, somebody who's in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere? I know I keep using a Native American example. But what if they live, what if they were born in uh, 0 B.C. and they die in 50 B.C.? I'm sorry, 50 A.D., right? Mm. So this is just after Christ yeah. dies. Seems pretty unfair for him. He was born before Christ but died after Christ. No way he's ever going to get the chance for an apostle to sail across the ocean blue and yeah. and share the good news with him. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot with that question no, and answer. No, but no. My answer is going to be Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? In other words, so those those people that are in the that, that changing age, you're just going to have to leave it up to God and, and just say, we don't know uh, what they're... What, what rule God is going to use, but we know that he is just, and we just have to leave it up to him. But we really honestly don't know, I think, at those times. What about those people, you know, right at that time, that time before the gospel even was mm -hmm. went into the, all the world? Okay. Um, we, I, I really gonna, am just going to leave that up to God. I know that the new covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ, as Hebrews 9 says, that a testament is not a force until men are dead. So... While Jesus was alive, he could forgive sins personally, and he did. Right. He, he had that power. 
Right. Uh, the thief on the cross, I think, is a good example of a of a salvation uh, under the old law by Jesus Himself. He said, "You're going to be with me in paradise." God, Jesus, could forgive sins while He was alive, but the precious blessing of an atoning sacrifice that He made by dying on the cross that can only be accessed through the new covenant mm-hmm. that was ratified whenever Jesus died, for it's right. not a force as long as men live. That's what the argument of Hebrews chapter 9 is talking about. Um, somebody in our modern time who might ask the same questions that I have just asked you mm-hmm. may use that as proof or as evidence for why they don't want to believe the gospel because of its unfairness to somebody back in 50 A.D. who lived in you know, Canada or somewhere in this native side that had not come into contact with the gospel. And something that I encourage them with is there's a difference between you who is asking about them and them who never had the chance to ask. Don't use somebody's past history as an excuse for your present lack of obedience to the gospel. Exactly. That's what's really happening. A lot of people who are asking these questions are not in ignorance anymore. They're in rebellion. So we have to distinguish between the two groups. I totally agree. I think that that's a valid that's a valid point to talk about. Uh, you know, you can you can try to sometimes argue exceptions to the rule, uh, but whenever it comes to Jesus, just because there may be exceptions like the thief on the cross or the old law or whatever it might be, doesn't mean that the rule doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Just because there may be exceptions doesn't mean that the rule doesn't exist. And when people willfully go against what they know. Christ teaches, then that's a different, you're in a different situation. You you are going to be found in rebellion to God's right. will. Right. Yeah. Well, brother, let's uh, consider the size of the task, right? <laughs> so you've got some yeah. information here about uh, just the numbers of people on the world, et cetera. Let's go through that maybe. Help me understand how this is going to well, impact the scope of this discussion. Sometimes we, are, sometimes we get overwhelmed and say, well, if a person needs to hear the gospel in order to be saved, well then, wow, this task is almost unmanageable. That We, we really can't uh, fathom it. And my response to that would be, I think that only lately has it begun to be overwhelming. Historically, you go back to 100 AD, there was only 181 million people on the earth. And uh, you go back to about 1,000 A.D., and there were about 270 million people. Uh, 50 million of them were Christians, so to speak, at that time. And so the church was a lot more unified, a lot more specific in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways. At least and, in understanding that there is a right. God, there is a standard, there is a right. gospel. Right. right, right. And so, but, you know, the, the math that tells us about what our population is today, of course, has uh, we've kind of overwhelmed these numbers because in in 1989 there were 5.2 billion people and supposedly 1.7 billion Christians, you know. But today, it, well, at least in 2019, we have about 7.7 billion people, and mm-hmm. that's a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. You know, there's about 360,000 births a day, uh, 15,000 per hour, 250 per minute, four births per second. And whenever it comes... Every second. Yeah. 
four births. Okay. Four births. And then for deaths, uh, there's about 151,600 deaths per day, they estimate. That's about 6,300 people per hour at about 105 <laughs> each minute or about 2%. Two per second. So We're doubling our population pretty quick then. We are. If four are being born a second and two are dying. Exactly. Mm. And so that's the size and the scope of, of the issues. And so the, the, the religious people in the world have, have wrestled with this, and they've come up with about five different views. Okay, and so if we, if you allow would allow me just to kind of describe these five views, I will, and I'll tell people listening that I'll have this slide available as okay. a as an image on my website, so they Great. can go and look at it as well. Great, yeah. Uh, the first one is universalism, and that's a very comfortable doctrine that that basically says uh, just because that there's an issue, you know, this is almost the, like the ignorant argument that everybody's going to be saved anyway, so why worry about it? You know? mm -hmm. And um, all people will, in fact, be saved. No one's damned forever, and they use some passages. Um, but then, secondly, there's, I won't say who believes all those things, right. but there's, there's other people that believe that. Then there's inclusivism, which basically it's the unevangelized may be saved if they respond in faith to God based upon the revelation that they have. Okay. In other words, it basically goes back to the moral conscience argument before Christ. Uh, there's the Jews who were accountable to keeping the law and the Gentiles who were a law of the, the conscience. Law of the heart, right. Yeah, the law of the heart, okay. so to speak. And so they say that based upon that, man will be saved or man will be lost based upon their what they know about God, just in, from whatever, in whatever religion even they might be in. There's a little truth, they say, in all religions. C.S. Lewis is in that category. I know we're not talking about him, but in his Chronicles of the Narnia, a children's book series, mm -hmm. that doctrine of inclusivism finds its way in the seventh book. Yeah. We've just gone through that with our kids recently. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. go ahead. And then there's um, post-mortem evangelism, which is a unique little thing. You almost have to <laughs> read it a little bit. It really comes from some passages in the scriptures about... Uh, preaching to those who are dead, and mm -hmm. they believe that the dead will eventually receive an opportunity to believe in Jesus after death, which has led even some to add to that a baptism for the dead. In other words, on behalf of dead relatives. Oh, okay. Uh, there are some churches and some uh, today that believe in baptism on behalf of the dead, and that doesn't really save them, but it gives them the opportunity to claim that baptism was for them. And so right. some, some of those kind of... Seems like you wouldn't reject that if you died and you were already <laughs> there. I mean, that the proof is right in front of you. Yeah. It's pretty easy. Yeah. I, if, if I was worldly-minded, that would seem like the best option because, hey, I get to live my life, and then, and then after I die, I get a choice. You know, okay. Yeah, of All course right. I would take it. Sorry, I'm being a little facetious there. Go ahead. Well, no, 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 no. These are, these are the reason why these questions are asked. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then there's the fourth view. Well, let's review right quick. There's the universalism, which it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to be saved anyway. The inclusivism uh -huh. is that, no, God's, there's some going to be lost, but it's according to how much enlightenment a person has about right. that God right. that they're going to be judged by. Okay. And that's the inclusivism. And then there's the post-mortem evangelism, which people can accept Christ after they're dead. Okay. And then there's the universal opportunity before death. They believe that all people are given the opportunity to be saved by God 
sending the gospel to, by, to them by angels or by dreams or at the moment of death or, or uh, by middle knowledge, or in other words, just, just revelation that you have and that people will be enlightened at the moment, even at the moment of death, and therefore they can accept Christ then, and, and that, that that's a, a form of salvation. Okay. But they also believe that some will be lost, but they just believe that opportunity is going to be given to people. And then there's the restrictive view, which is a, a technical term. I kind of reject that. I, I call it the exclusive view. There's inclusive and exclusive, but a lot of times people use these terms restrictive. And in trying to do this, I, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, what are, what are those of us who are uh, do not believe in the abortion, that it's morally right? Are we anti-abortion <laughs> or are we pro-life? Right. Well, we like to think that we're, we, we use the term pro-life. Right. It's a positive and, term. And they want to use the negative term, right. anti-abortion. Yeah. I've noticed that. Well. <laughs> I've noticed that, depending on your source, yeah. how they define you. You're right. And the, the same thing is true with this restrictivism. Instead of using restrictive, I like to use the word exclusive. And I believe Jesus is, that's the kind of the way the Bible presents the truths about Jesus. For instance, in John 14, 6, okay. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, you might say, well, that, that definitely is restrictive. But I think what Jesus is defending is there's no other way. There's no, it's exclusive. This is, okay. a, this is an offer that I'm making mm-hmm. to you. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, um, It's the bridge. Right. If I can interrupt. You, you said that earlier. We used that analogy of the bridge. Right. He's the bridge to God. He's the bridge. He's the, he is. Did anybody, way. did anybody in the Bible back up that claim? Or is that something that's just exclusive to Christ? No, the Bible says it many different, in okay. many different ways. Uh, but like, for instance, in Acts 4.12, uh, there is salvation in no one else. Mm-hmm. Or there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Very exclusive language. Very exclusive language. And that's what I'm trying to say is I don't think that language is necessarily trying to be restrictive. He's not trying to say, ha, 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 you don't get it. He's trying to say, no, anyone can have it, but he is the only way. He's the only source. Right. He is the only way. So um, then you get passages which nail down that really give us an answer to the question. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 through 8, For after all, it is only just, it says, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. There's two groups of people there. Right. Those who don't obey the gospel and people in rebellion. Right. And those who do not know God. But I think that that includes those who are in rebellion, too, and that we're going to get to that okay. even more so. I think if people, Jesus makes promises to people, and, uh, and, he, and he wants them to know that if they draw near to him, he will draw nigh to them. And there's promises to unbeliever, uh, unbelievers la- later on. But um, let, me, let me just say, 
in sticking with our notes, people are not lost because they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. People are not lost because they don't repent and are not baptized. People are not lost because they do not obey the gospel. People are lost because of sin. They sin. Right. Sin is what separates us from God, Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Obeying the gospel is how that sin is removed. Right. But the problem is not not hearing the gospel. The problem is our sin is what condemns us. It's like the example you gave. It, it makes a lot of sense in this last couple of sentences that you've just said. If I'm in a boat that has life preservers and I fall in the water, what caused me to drown? Being in the water and drowning, not the not absence of a life preserver or problem. not being this, that I drowned because I was in the water. Exactly. And that's what Romans 3.23 is saying is that we, the wages of sin is death. And that's the problem. So we are lost because of our sin, not because no one preached the gospel to us. From the scripture then, is God fair in sending people to hell for sins? You know, an eternal hell. Mm -hmm. Is God fair to do that to those who sin? Yes, because of his problem. We're going we're gonna to notice how God can remain just in that. Okay. But yes, the problem with, with being with being reconciled to God is our sin. Our sins have made the break between us and God. Our sins have brought about the wages of sin, which is a death, a spiritual death. So it's our sin. God didn't make us to sin. And that's why I do not believe God created us with a sinful nature. If God mm -hmm. did, then God's responsible for our sin. Correct. God would be but unjust if he created if us he with created a sinful us nature us. and then said, your sins keep you out of heaven. Right, right. Now that, that makes be, sense. That would be wrong. But God didn't do that. And yet on the in in opposition to that, God made it possible for us to not only have the gospel and know the gospel, but he says those who seek me will find me. He made promises to mm -hmm. people who are seeking him. So God is just whenever he sends people to, to none of us deserve heaven if we've sinned willfully. None of us None of us deserve it. Say, God, let me in anyway. God goes, hey, heaven's holy. I didn't create you to sin. You chose sin. Just like angels were thrown out of here because they sinned, you have chosen to do that which is uh, sinful and wrong. You have several points here about the fairness of God. I know we're going through them. I don't want to get too far away. Mm -hmm. I want to pause here just to bring out a point that I heard at the preacher study. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling it right now, and that is... I was born into a Christian family. Uh, I had parents who taught me the gospel. Talk about the spiritual lottery mm -hmm. versus the 7.7 .7 billion exactly. who have to struggle and claw if they are if they see, if they're seeking truth. You know, truth is it's there. God has promised it. That finding truth has not been promised that it's going to be just falling into your lap and you don't have to do anything. There's a you know right. We have to. See there it. is the seeking of right. truth. But man, what I'm feeling right now is an immense comfort, blessing, but also guilt. And in in that, I have been given this blessing of being born into a Christian home that so many didn't have. Mm -hmm. The truth is so evident to me. Um, I had this question about 15 to 20 years ago that you helped me with, my parents helped me with it, and that was, if I wasn't born into this home, could I have found it? And I didn't like what the answer was. 
And so then that made me think, is my faith really my own? Or is it really just an imprinting of my parents' faith? I didn't like that either. Because suddenly it felt like I wasn't my own person. And really what I had to come to the conclusion was, regardless of how I was raised, I'll stand before God in judgment based on my faith, not my parents' faith. I won't ride in on their coattails. Neither will anybody. No, you, you won't ride in on your parents. That's what Ezekiel 18 is saying. And uh, and your kids won't be able to ride in on your faith right. either. It's in, Or churches. Sometimes people think we're saved as a bunch, you know. <laughs> and, and each, but I, I say, no, each individual grape will stand before God. <laughs> That's funny. Um, within churches, there's hypocrites. Obviously, Ro- Revelation chapters 2 and 3 says, some of you shall walk with me in white. Uh-huh. So, the Bible tells us there that we're not going to be saved as a church even. We're going to individually stand before Jesus Christ as, as he is the, the sin sacrifice. And we will give an answer for the, our deeds done while in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil, the Bible says. In Amen. Well, I'm so, thinking about in Luke. Jesus said, this is one, I guess, motivation for me and others who have been born into Christian families. Mm-hmm. Jesus said to him who has given much, much will be required. Exactly. And so I, I do think there's an element that uh, of motivation. If you're born in the church, you've been given the blessings. Oh, yeah. Don't squander them. Oh, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think that there are many people who are blessed and have no idea how much effort others have put into learning the truth and have had to put in to come to a knowledge that Jesus is who he claims to be. Um, you know, we've been almost handed it to us, but we don't appreciate it. Mm-hmm. like some people do. Mm-hmm. You know. Here's a little preview for an episode coming up later this month. I'm interviewing a, a good young man who's got a solid head on his shoulders, first-generation Christian. I'm not going to really reveal his identity right now. I'll have to wait for that if you're listening. But he recently talked with me about the culture change of coming into the church, of having to literally deny himself and pick up Christ and go where Christ goes, because where he came out of, his identity was in that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And coming into the church, he had to give up his identity. And so he felt lost. Even though he was saved, he felt lost. Mm-hmm. And he had, to, he had to basically start his life over at, at 25 or 26 years old. Yeah. And that's one that many who have been born and raised in the church, it's just been part of who we are for our life, whether we're a child of God or then when we obey the gospel. Well, I've taken us down a super long tangent, so well, no, I don't apologize I, for it. But no, no. <laughs> I think I think that's something no matter how if you're raised in the church you have to come face to face with the reality that you're right my parents can't save me the church I go to can't save me directly you know and, and things like this we we need to to really come to grips with the fact that I've caused the problem I need to repent right. I need to change my life to co- to be reconciled to a creator who is all good all righteous, all holy, mm-hmm. and to know him, it, it makes him a great God, and to have a loving God extend grace to me while I was yet a sinner makes him even more amazing, yeah. and that, you know, I, I can't shut it up and shut it up inside of me, and most Christians need to have that, that appreciation right. for, the, for the Christ, and, and to really get it, I think, before they understand why there's so much joy in why this is such a great thing to know, Amen. to know God. That's kind of the third point you have in your list here. Uh, 
God, you're making the statement God is fair if he sends people to hell for their sin. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about his justice and how sinners deserve to go to hell because of their choices. But then that avenue is gracious for anyone to be saved. That third point, he's gracious to provide salvation through Christ. Right. From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. Well, let me just read that right quick because it's such a wonderful passage. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, or that is, uh, were because of, of this uh, children of wrath, even as the rest. Mm-hmm. In other words, it had become, sinning had become second nature to us. Mm-hmm. It had become part of our, our life. Right. It says, but, but, there's that chapter four, I mean, chapter two, verse four, but <laughs> God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Amen. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. That means limitless. The riches means when somebody has an unbounding amount of money, they said they would be rich in this. You know, they don't know how much they've got at this moment. Right. Well, that's it, is that God is unfathomable in his amount of grace that he has for us, the riches of his grace, and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. That what? All of that, the whole salvation thing is not of ourselves. It is from God. God, because of his love, because of his grace, because of his concern for our eternal welfare. It all came from him. <clears throat> and not of works that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, we would walk in them. So this whole passage is just really telling us the fact that God is amazing well, it's a beautiful scripture, and it mm-hmm. sums up that idea really well, that he was gracious. He didn't have to. He was gracious. Now, you, in the <clears> next <throat> few points, um, really go to emphasize that we've, we've kind of done it to ourselves mm-hmm. from Romans. This is kind of an overview of Romans, but you've got a few points here. Will you go, <laughs> go through them with us real quick on uh, sure. how we're, you know, it's on us. Well, yeah. God has put within people a basic awareness of himself and of his requirements to do what is right. Well, we're going to pause right there once again. I invite you to come back next week as we consider the fairness and the justice of God once again. You can go to the website. In the meantime, check out any old podcast episodes, videos, and other resources for you to download absolutely free. And please, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. It's great to get those reminders automatically on your phone in whichever listening platform you prefer to listen to. Until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon.